Well, good morning. I'm doing a quick sound check here because I forgot to check my mic uh, before service. Uh, if any of you are uh, super gifted at technology, uh, you could let us know. Um, I, I tried so hard to like work on the sound for uh, today, and then I, I think I realized there was a bit of an echo. I think I had the speaker turned up so much that the mics were picking up the speaker. So I deserve to be fired. I hope you all forgive me. We're going to go with that. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to be reading uh, from the beginning, starting with verse 1. Uh, it was good to be away. It's good to go with my family and spend uh, some time on the shining shores of Lake Tahoe and do some paddle boarding and rest. Um, it's a little bittersweet coming home. Our, Pastor Mark and I were talking about that this morning. They got to go to the, the Oregon coast. But, but typically, at least for me, you go on vacation, but you get excited to come back and to see people and to normal rhythms. And so this year was a bit different coming back, realizing there's no normal rhythms to return to. And typically, you go, I go at least away on vacation, and I'm excited to come back on that first Sunday back and see a bunch of people. And, and so today's a little... Uh, bittersweet, realizing that, that you all are on the other side of a screen. So I uh, just want you to know that I miss you all. I hope, you, hope you're doing well and, and look forward to the day uh, that we can be together again and throw a big party. Sylvia, thanks for wishing us well. Um, I do have one bone to pick. Last week I, I posted, or when we were leaving, I posted a picture of the four of us on, on Facebook, and it was my cue to the world that I was going to be gone for a bit and I wouldn't be on social media. We're driving a little bit down the road. We're on the freeway somewhere in Washington, and I hear Kristen giggle while she's looking at her phone, and she says, Oh, Marilyn. Because apparently Marilyn wrote, Good luck, Kristen, or something along the lines of, Good luck with your three children while on vacation. <laughs> that wasn't very kind, Marilyn. But, yeah, but, but true, they say. So, um, but it was good, it was good to be away, uh, it was good to be away, and, and, and it's kind of good to be back, though I, I do miss you all. One of the things, I'll let you a little bit on the inside scoop, at least for me, there's other pastors in the room, they're probably more holy than I am, so they probably don't think this way. But when you go away, it's good to not have to preach, it's good to not have to speak. Sometimes, I love preaching, but sometimes it can be a bit of a grind. And so, having a couple weeks away... Uh, you know, you get the itch to talk a little bit. And in particular, again, this is where I'll show my lack of holiness, but like you get away and, and, and you want to get the itch to preach a little bit, so you want your first sermon when you get back to just be a home run, a doozy. And, and that's a little bit extra when you're collaborating and you have just this room full of other clergy folks. So, so there's a part of me this week that as I was thinking about the sermon, I... I, I this one needed to be good, which, of course, it was doomed from the beginning. So, so I began to think, okay, okay, um, this one is on Saul's conversion, as people talk about it. What would be a good opening illustration for this just dynamic sermon? What could I use to kind of light this puppy on fire? 
My first idea. Now, I'm not going to use my first idea, but my first idea was to use The Walking Dead. I'm not going to use this as a sermon illustration, but if I was to use this as a sermon illustration, what I was going to do was talk about how for much of The Walking Dead, you had the lead character Rick Grimes for like seven seasons. Um, and then you get to about season seven, somewhere in there, and I won't give you a total spoiler alert, but, but after that, Rick Grimes is no longer the lead character. And uh, you could debate about who the lead character is. Probably most people would say it's Daryl. What you have in this show is the shift in the kind of narrative flow about who is kind of leading things. And I, I thought about using this as an opening sermon illustration to talk about how for the beginning of Acts, we've kind of had Peter driving the narrative bus, and, and now we're getting ready to shift into a, to this, this kind of place in Acts where, where or Paul will drive the narrative bus. I thought about using that as a sermon illustration, but I figured Marilyn would clearly make fun of me for using Walking Dead as a sermon illustration, so I'm not going to use that as my opening sermon illustration. So I thought to myself, okay, if I can't use The Walking Dead, what else could I use as an opening sermon illustration? And then it hit me. I could use The Bachelor. <laughs> Do I have any Bachelor fans in my local audience here, Chris, a little bit? A little bit? Oh, okay. Well, I'm not a fan of The Bachelor or Bachelorette. Kristen is, and I just, I want to be a good husband, so I watch it with her. Um, this season, because of COVID-19, is going to be a weird season. So if you haven't, if, if you don't know, which most of you don't because you're good people. Again, I, 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 this was my second idea for a sermon illustration. I'm not using this as an illustration, but this was an idea. But they're doing this weird thing. They can't go to the Bachelor Mansion. They can't travel around the world. So what they did is like rented out this massive resort with massive hotels and massive pools and all that good stuff. And so they started filming, and they got about a third of the way through filming The Bachelorette. And then there's kind of two stories out there, and I'm not sure which one is true. Either the lead fell in love and decided they no longer wanted to pursue the other 24 people and essentially quit, and so they had to replace her. Or that's kind of version one. Or version two is the producers could see that she clearly was into one person at the expense of all the others, and they went to her and said, this is not going to make for good TV. We're going to replace you with somebody else. I thought about using this as a sermon illustration. I'm not going to use it as a sermon illustration, but the idea would have been that Acts starts with Peter and then shifts to Paul, but I decided Sylvia would clearly make fun of me if I was to use The Bachelor as a sermon illustration. So I'm not going to use The Walking Dead. I'm not going to use The Bachelor. What else could I use, I thought, this week? And then it hit me, professional wrestling. <laughs> Do I have any professional wrestling fans in the house? From the year 1996 to the year 2000, I was so into wrestling. My grandma would record it all and I would watch it all. My cousin Scott and I would spend summers eating pizza bites and watching professional wrestling. Now, for those of you who are good Christians and don't watch professional wrestling, there are two kind of different characters. There are what we call heels, Heels would be the bad people, and baby faces would be the good people. Now, within the narrative arc of, of professional wrestling, inevitably you have to change up the dynamics of where you're going. And so on big kind of shows, big moments within the story that they were telling, you would have these moments where a heel would switch characters and become a baby face, or a baby face would become a heel. Probably the most well-known one was in the summer of 1996. It's one of the things that hooked me. Hulk Hogan, the greatest baby face of all time, turned in his baby face card and became a heel. 
I thought about using this as a sermon illustration to open my sermon, but then it dawned on me. And, and by the way, I was going to connect the dots about Saul starting as a heel, trying to kill the church, but then he clearly becomes a baby face. But, but last minute I decided that really doesn't work. So I just gave up on having an opening sermon illustration. And this, this sermon has no opening sermon <laughs> illustration. Do you see what I did there? That was cute, wasn't it? I just wasted like 10 minutes of your time. It's probably because I don't have an oat milk latte today. But that, that illustration honestly doesn't work either. Because if we were to dive into the story uh, of, of Saul's quote-unquote conversion, as many people talk about it, then in the context of the story, Saul wouldn't have been viewed as a heel. He would have been in that context viewed as a babyface. This one who is giving himself to the active persecution of the church. He, is, he has gone to his kind of elders, his community, and has asked for the ability to go up and round up the people who are following Jesus and to exterminate them. And he's now on his way to go and do that. Within that context of the community he gave himself to, that would not have been viewed as a negative. It would have been viewed as a deeply faithful act of one who is deeply committed to living out their faith in the way they and their community knew best. If we were to dive ourselves into the Old Testament, uh, we would find strands of this. Probably the most notable strand, the most notable one that we, most of us would know, is the story um, of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Where you have a story where uh, Elijah goes to Vegas and makes a prop bet with all the, the prophets of Baal. You know how the story goes, Elijah ultimately wins the bet. Wins big, kind of like I'm going to win at fantasy football. <laughs> Unless Krista beats me. Elijah wins the bet, and at the end of the story, what we find is what Elijah does is he slaughters all, or they slaughter all the prophets of Baal. And from within the tradition of Israel, this was a beautiful thing. But that's not the only one. There's a less known story, a story that comes to us in uh, Numbers. I won't tell you the whole story, but it's the story kind of evolved around Balaam and his talking donkey, the original Shrek. But the story, if you follow it, uh, ultimately the plan is to get Israel to essentially curse themselves because other curses don't work because of this talking donkey. And ultimately the story plays out where they, they send in a bunch of, of uh, ladies to woo um, the uh, good Hebrew gentleman, and they do so, and, and Israel in a sense curses themselves by, by giving themselves to all sorts of um, idol worship in some negative ways that do real damage. But if you follow the story, there's this character, Phineas. This character, Phineas, who grabs a spear and who goes and takes um, matters into his own hand, and in particular, in an incredibly violent, um, it was, if this was a television show, it would get mature at the beginning, he takes out um, the specific couple who has given themselves over to this, um, this sexual idolatry in this moment. But if you follow the story of Phineas, and there's this place in the Psalms, this is looked upon as this incredibly holy act. In fact, throughout the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, there's this word that is tied to this violence. It's called zeal. And zeal within this tradition, which is often, often, often tied to violence, is often seen through a positive lens. That what people are doing when they enact this violence is the holy thing. It's the good thing. It's the righteous thing. It is the people of God protecting the very thing that is most 
sacred, the faithfulness to Yahweh. So when we begin to this, this chapter 9 of Acts and we see Saul on his way to exterminate the people of the way, we have to begin the story by seeing that from within Saul's context, what he's doing is for them a beautiful thing. The only problem is, is it's not so beautiful to the resurrected Jesus. In fact, what we see through the Gospels is violence is never beautiful to the resurrected Jesus. That's why he says things like, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemies. Peter, what are you thinking, dummy? Put down your sword. And so in this moment where Paul is on his journey, living it out as faithfully as he can, he has this mystical moment with the resurrected Jesus where the resurrected Jesus captures his attention and his imagination, captures his whole being, and radically changes the trajectory for Saul of what faithful living looks like within the context of his culture. One of the things that's very interesting uh, if you dive into all the nerdy scholarship, is the question of, because many of us, right, we think about this as Saul's conversion. But if you dive into the scholarship, there's a lot of people that want to say, no, no, this is not a conversion, at least as we um, typically think about conversion. Because, right, when we think about conversion, often we're thinking about like an atheist or an agnostic going from no belief to belief in the one God, or maybe somebody who is going from a belief in a, another um, tradition, maybe Islam, Buddhism, whatever, and, and suddenly they decide to believe in, in, in Yahweh, and so that's a conversion, kind of a one-time entrance into where you go from lack of belief to belief. But what's fascinating about this story is it's really not that type of conversion, at least. Paul doesn't go from not, or Saul doesn't go from not believing to believing. He goes from believing wades deeply into a season, a moment of deconstruction. And over the course of a day, three days, months, years, comes out the other side with a salvific season of reconstruction. So it's very much salvation if we view salvation with a much broader lens. But for Paul, this is a season of deconstructing and reconstructing. Everything he thought he knew about this God and what it means to be faithful to God has been obliterated. And he's now following a new way. Which I think begs the question, when was the last time we let the resurrected Jesus totally obliterate all that we held to be true. True about theology. True about God. When was the last time we let the resurrected Jesus totally obliterate all? Because right for Saul, this is an obliteration of how he thought about Torah in some ways. How, not not, not an undoing of it, but a, a totally reframing of it. How he thought about temple. When was the last time we let the resurrected Jesus capture our attention and imagination and undo or redo how we think about everything? This is hard for us. Uh, if you enter into this conversation with most sociologists, did I say that right? Sociologists. That's one of those words I butcher every time. 
If you enter into this conversation with most sociologists, it's very fascinating how they think about faith in Western culture, and particularly faith, Christian faith within America. There's this acknowledgement. There's this acknowledgement that certainly people identify as Christian. That is the faith they claim they identify with. But as experts and sociologists kind of dive into what that looks like as it's fleshed out and lived out, um, what many describe the actual faith that people claim to be Christian is a sort of practical atheism. That we claim to be quote-unquote Christian or followers of Jesus, but, but if you'd actually dive into what that means for people, it often looks much more like a practical form of atheism. Because we bought into the notion that has shaped us from Western culture, from frankly what it means as Americans, as our rugged individualists, that this life is ultimately about us. Go pursue the good life. Go live your best life. Go seek your truth. And so for many of us, we have been so ingrained in this kind of individualistic lens of how we see our lives and how we see the world that while we would say we have faith, that faith is much more like this privatized spiritual hobby. It's interesting going on vacation with a four-year-old and a one-year-old. You're in a hotel room, and you're trying to get a four-year-old and a one-year-old to sleep at the same time. Dun-dun-dun. So what do you do? Well, you turn out the lights and you, you try to get it as quiet as you can. And so basically at 9 o'clock, you just have to know that, that we're shutting this down for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. Goodness gracious. And so what do Kristen and I do during those times? Well, we, we do our hobbies, Kristen crochets. That's her new hobby. What do I do? Well, fantasy football season's around, so I get out my phone and I look at who are all the sleepers I need to draft so I can make sure I beat Krista and Mark. It's a hobby. Kristen might tell you it's more than a hobby, but it's a hobby. It is fantasy football and fantasy baseball is not who I am. It is something I do. It is a hobby, but it is not at the core of what it means to be Sean Matson. Crocheting is not at the core of what it means to be Kristen Matson. It is something she does. It is not who she is. But if you enter into this conversation, most sociologists will think what we have in terms of Christianity and Western culture and, and, and in America is not so much an all-encompassing faith that defines who we are, but often and too often is this privatized faith that seemingly is closer to a hobby than an identity. So the problem when we ask the question, when was the last time we let the resurrected Jesus just totally mess with us? The problem as Western Americans is, the way we ask that is, when was the last time we let Jesus change our mind on a theological abstract idea? But for Saul in this moment, what changes here is not just an abstract theological idea, it is the very core of truth and identity that will change everything. It'll change how he sees violence. It'll change how he sees the world. It'll change how he sees power and privilege and money and sex. It is this all-encompassing radical shift that changes the man at his very core. 
So the question, when was the last time we let the resurrected Jesus mess with us? It's not just when did we let Jesus kind of marinate in our spiritual hobby, but when was the last time we let Jesus mess with the whole foundation of the very core of who we are as individuals? When did we let Jesus capture our imagination on a quote-unquote road to Damascus that helps us to deconstruct and reconstruct for the sake of witnessing to the reality of the kingdom of God. A couple observations then this morning about some ways I think this story might want to mess with us in this COVID-19 election time with all sorts of stuff that's capturing our attention. The first thing that I think might want to mess with us. Notice in this mystical moment Paul, Saul has what words he first hears. Saul, why are you persecuting me? For the longest time, I've thought that that why are you persecuting me is kind of just a throwaway line. It doesn't really carry the weight of that because the reality is Saul isn't technically persecuting Jesus, per se. He's persecuting his followers. But I've become increasingly convinced in a sort of mysterious way that this is the beginning moment or, or maybe a continuing moment for Saul that is continuing to shape and define the way he thinks about the divine. That when this resurrected Jesus in this mysterious moment asks him, why are you persecuting me that what Saul is hearing in this moment is in this question is a truth being communicated that at the fabric of creation we are all more deeply connected than we often want to admit to each other and to the divine And so in a real mystical sense, when Paul is going about writing off some people, Jesus can say, you are writing off me. Paul is giving himself, Saul is giving himself into this moment to a worldview that says, there are some people that are inside the story, and there are other people that are outside the story. And for Saul and for his current worldview entering into this narrative, it is okay to write people off as outside the story. And what does Jesus do in this moment? He captures his attention and says, enough with that worldview, that's bonkers. There is nobody now, Saul, who is outside the story. It's why Saul will eventually later say, you all are the body of Christ. He's not just giving for them a good tagline that they can put on a website to brand well. He is giving for themselves a theological truth that you are all deeply connected together. That you as communities form something that is more than the sum of your parts, that you become the body of Jesus. There is nobody now who you can look look at as inside the story and outside the story because now everybody is in. It's why Saul will later write, there is now neither slave nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, right? You are all one. It's why later he'll write things like, what this Jesus is doing, like in Colossians, that that he's restoring all things. He'll say somewhere, things above and things below. 
Because for Saul, this moment on a road to Damascus is the beginning of a radical transformation that does away with anybody being on the outside of the story and an entry into a new way of seeing the world where everyone is inside the story. Which is just radically foreign from our world. We just had conventions, one on a left convention and one on a right convention. I watched both. Isn't it fascinating that both conventions just argued that the people on the other side of the story deserve, on the other side of the, uh, um, the aisle deserve to be on the outside of the story? And the resurrected Jesus wants to just show up and say, yeah, be done with that. We do this in the church world. Wesleyans, fundamentalists, well, I guess the fundamentalists, they can be outside the story. Just kidding. What the resurrected Jesus wants us to hear is everybody's in. Yes, even the person wearing a red hat. And yes, even the person that is maybe crossing a line from protest to riot. But from the perspective of the resurrected Jesus, calling the church to be the body of Christ in the world. For a people who are going to claim the name of Jesus, we no longer have the right. Catch that. We no longer have the right to name anybody as outside the story. Second observation. It's interesting and you find this in Luke, uh, both in the Gospel and in Acts, it's almost as if the journey is the destination. You see that uh, in the journey to Jerusalem. You see that in the road to Emmaus. I think you see that now in the road to Damascus. The journey is the destination. It's interesting that in this text, even the church, the Christian church, is not called Christians. What are they called? I didn't read the text, so you won't know that. Sorry, I just decided to go without reading. You should go read it, chapter 9 today. They're called the way. The people following Jesus, they're called the way. Which I think is a way for us to see this journey we're on. The journey is the destination. For many of us, there is the sense that we've got to go find our best life, cling to our best life. Once we've arrived at our best life, never let go of our best life. But for the people who follow Jesus, that is not the picture we're handed in the Scriptures. The picture we're had, handed is this way, this path, this road that we are on. And it's as if the journey is a part the destination. And on this journey that is the destination we give ourselves to being present to the road with the expectation that on the road, along the way, sometimes in moments, sometimes in seasons, sometimes in decades, radical transformation takes place. Saul enters this road thinking that violence is absolutely a holy response. And in a moment that turns into days, that turns into months, that turns into years, he's radically transformed never to pursue violence again. But to pursue radical hospitality. 
Now, I know that probably can... I know when we talk about violence, there's some things going on in our world that this becomes a trigger. So I want to make sure that on both sides, this doesn't become see a gotcha moment. Because for the Jesus follower, for the Jesus follower, the radical transformation that takes place is we have to give up violence. Violence is not the answer to justice. That's as true for nations who think dropping bombs will be the answer. For people in power who think guns will be the answer. And for protesters who think violence will be the answer. For the people of Jesus, violence is never the answer. And what you see inside this text is Paul is invited to get rid of his violence and now to turn to a way where he will spend his life sacrificing So don't just use that as an excuse to say, see no violence, see no violence, see no violence, because for the Jesus follower, the very next thing we have to say is, now where am I going to go? And where am I going to, in a sense, take on the abuse of others so that they don't have to carry that weight themselves? Because Paul will now spend the rest of his life carrying that cross. Final thing, because I've got to stop. It's interesting that Saul has this mystical moment where he encounters the resurrected Jesus. It's his experience. It's deeply personal. But isn't it fascinating that this deeply personal moment Saul can only come alive to because of community? He needs an Ananias to come and put his hand on his shoulder and say, Brother Saul, and to begin to walk alongside. We ought not miss how dangerous this is for Ananias. For Ananias, you have the person who is coming to exterminate his local community, his friends, his family, and and now he hears from the divine that the divine wants him to go and to walk alongside this one who, who is for him a great risk. And yet, in the obedience of people who follow the way of Jesus, Ananias enters in and leans into this risk and becomes the means of grace for Saul that helps him to come fully alive to this mystical moment he had on a Damascus road. I think one of the things this text wants to mess with us is to remind us that in our, in our radically individualistic culture that probably we've, we've even enhanced that more during COVID time where we, it's harder to be in community. It reminds us that spiritual formation, the formation of the whole person, body, mind, and soul happens in almost, I mean, I want to be careful of this, but it happens in community. We need each other. I need you. You need me. We need each other. Certainly we need to get creative with what that means in a pandemic season. But I'm increasingly convinced that at the heart of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is this heart that seeks to form a people, not just individuals, but people, a people that will give their lives away witnessing to the realities of the kingdom of God. So it's good this morning. It's good that I decided not to start this sermon with a walking dead reference. Because ultimately that, that, that example would break down. 
The main character started with Rick. It's now Daryl. In a couple seasons, it'll be somewhere else. But if you follow the book of Acts, it would have obliterated that example because in the book of Acts, Acts doesn't start with Peter and end with Paul. The main character in the book of Acts is the Spirit of God breathing and infusing the life of the church with the breath of the divine. It's a good thing I, I didn't use the illustration of The Bachelor. Because we know how that story goes. Ultimately, give out a rose and six months later they'll be split. And the story of this road that we're called on to is not a story where we just get on it for a season that feels good, but ultimately we throw the rose in the trash and go on to the next thing that feels good. So that sermon illustration would have broken apart because this is a story we're called to give our entire lives to. And frankly, it's a good thing I didn't use professional wrestling as an illustration because it's fake. <laughs> but because if you follow professional wrestling, the turn from the heel to the baby face, eventually they'll turn heel again. And in this story we're called to, the story called the kingdom of God, the invitation is not just to sporadically turn in seasons of our life only to go back again to sin or brokenness or addiction or whatever. But the invitation of this story is to turn and to keep on turning for good into life, into love, into grace, into shalom, into giving ourselves to this new reality. Amen? So may we let Jesus mess with us. May we let Jesus enter us into seasons of deconstruction and reconstruction. May we let Jesus guide us on our road, on the journey that is in fact the destination. And may we do so in community, realizing that we need each other. And may we experience in this the grace and peace of this reality called the kingdom of God. Pastor Regina, would you come and lead us?